They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. My chance to go watch Made in China. We play ping pong ball Made in China. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm here today with Nick Consonari, who's a director at the Rhodium Group, which is a research firm focusing on global macro trends. Previously, who worked at FTI Consulting and full disclosure, sat next to me for two years back at the Eurasia Group. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, his recent uh, China dashboard, which looks at the the developments of various policy form efforts that the Xi government has been pushing, um, and he has a pretty negative outlook on what's been going down on the reform side. So, looking forward to jumping in on that with you, Nick. Thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Well, thank you for having me, Jordan. This is uh, really great, and I'm I'm happy to have the opportunity to share some of our views with you. Great. So, Nick, why China? Well, I think uh, you know, honestly, for me. Maybe similar to your experience in China right now, Jordan. But my my passion for uh, the country really sort of started with the study of the language. Um, you know, freshman year, fall term, I went to college in small school in South Carolina, and then I had a language requ- requirement, and I, I decided to start studying Chinese. And um, that was in the fall of two thousand and one. Not to date myself too much, but uh, and you know, sort of one thing led to another. I had an opportunity to study abroad in Shanghai in two thousand and two, and interned with a venture capital fund at the Port Free Trade Zone in Tianjin in 2004 and um, ended up going to graduate school uh, to study Chinese politics and uh, get a master's degree in Asian studies. And uh, the rest is history, I guess. So what what has kept you interested in the country? Well, the story has been so vibrant over the past 10 years, right? I mean, when I came out of graduate school and, you know, I had an opportunity to be hired at the Eurasia Group and, you know, we were focusing on obviously politics, policy, political risk, country risk. And uh, China was the, you know, the primary focus of a lot of client private sector and public sector interest um, in in that market. And uh, so it was very apparent, you know, and it, it remains apparent throughout my career that, demand for real insight uh, into what's going on in China, what has recently happened in China, uh, and demand for good analysis of, you know, what we think is coming um, is very high. So it's, you know, I, I think it's just been a, it's, I benefited from the, you know, the, 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 uh, the growth that China has seen. And more than that, maybe, because I don't think it's just the headline economic growth, but it's, you know, the underlying dynamics that drive that growth, um, you, know, you know, what's really going on in the economy, uh, you know, what what is what's going on in the economy and what's going on in the policy realm tell us about the sustainability or lack thereof of this economic model and, um, you know, what will be the reverberations of, of various scenarios in that regard. So um, obviously the financial crisis sort of accelerated that. China's role as the incremental uh, predominant driver of global economic growth put it in the sort of forefront of the market uh, focus and the corporate focus. And um, now here we are fast forwarding to today, and maybe this is a great segue to the, the China dashboard product, but um, you know, to, in an environment where uh, China has obviously been successful in sustaining 
at the surface, relatively, uh, not relatively, I mean, uh, apparently rapid economic growth. Um, but there are swirling questions about at what cost and, um, you, you know, what types of downside risks may be on the horizon. So it's, uh, you know, our dashboard product is really an effort to try to grapple with that to say, hey, what's working, what isn't, you know, look at the observable data um, and try to understand what's changed, what hasn't and what more the government needs to do. Well, Nick, I really appreciate you doing my job for me. Um, the China Dashboard Project, a new um, research report, which is more than a research report um, that came out a few weeks ago now, uh, walks through a number of different uh, policy lenses uh, looking at what China, what the Chinese government is and isn't doing. Um, so could you walk us through why um, you think the world needed this um, and what it encompasses? Yeah. So look, I think first and foremost, that the dashboard is a collaborative product between the Rhodium Group and our partners at the Asia Society Policy Institute, which have an important role to play in, uh, you know, charting the the course for our, re- our, our research and providing analytic feedback and helping to promote the product and obviously hosting it on their website. So we're, um, you know, this is very much a collaborative product between the two of our institutions. Um, you know, and I think it was really born out of this idea fundamentally that, uh, you know, there's a broad sense in the China observer community and, and the broader sort of, you know, market investor community and among policymakers around the world, uh, that there's a substantial set of policy challenges, uh, economic reform policy challenges, challenges um, you know, that the Chinese government is currently facing. Ford product was basically to try to really look at the data, look at all the available indicators that, you know, we can either um, base on existing data streams uh, coming from China or, you know, from global sources, um, or do, you know, through the process of our own observations um, of realities on the ground to try to basically, you know, put some real rigor around understanding what's going on and then produce some analysis based on that um, in regard to what's working, what isn't. Great. So before we start jumping into the specific policy uh, regions, could you talk a little bit about what Xi's main goals are? Um, could you summarize, you know, wh- where you think his head at is in in regards to overall strategy? Um, in the uh, in the in the piece, you mentioned that in July of 2017, the National Work Conference said that the root of many of China's greatest risks was too much leverage debt throwing flowing through SOE and local government balance sheets, and that dealing with this problem was the nation's top priority. Um, but that conviction seems to have not played out necessarily over the over the subsequent uh, six months. So where do you think his head's at now? Look, I, I think the, the Xi administration's focus right now is predominantly on trying to follow through with the, you know, somewhat focused, I would say, um, set of economic policy priorities they've identified over the past few years. You mentioned one of those, which is the deleveraging campaign, which is about trying to, fundamentally, it's about trying to reduce financial systemic risk um, and limit malpractice in the financial and financial services sector. That's obviously been a a major focus of policy over the past year. And one, by the way, that we think is is having a tangible effect on on the the financial sector and on capital markets in China. And I certainly see that in my work um, day to day working with uh, financial institutions who are trying to you know, understand how they may be affected by, by this policy shift or really seeing those realities play out in the market. Um, and in addition to that, and I, I think somewhat related to it, you've got this, what they call the supply side structural reform agenda, which is about trying to reduce production over capacities in heavy industries. Um, and 
that pertains to a number of the indicators that we, we observe in our dashboard environment, innovation, um, investment, uh, obviously competition, state-owned enterprises. I mean, this the supply side uh, structural reform agenda touches on so many elements of China's overall industrial policy. Um, it has tangible price effects, which we see promoting um, or boosting in some ways artificially the performance and profits of state-owned companies and industries that have been the focus of supply-side efforts. Um, so, you know, to take a step back, though, I, I think what we see is a government that is, has, you know, uh, to give fair credit, has identified, you know, some areas where uh, structural adjustments are needed um, or where risks are becoming so severe that policy needed to turn. And, and they're focused on, uh, on, on trying to, you know, at the margins, make some improvements there. The concern is this sort of broader story about China headed in a more market-based, less state interventionist and state-run direction, uh, which was this whole idea of, you know, a converging China that was the basis for, you know, the United States and other other countries to support China's accession to the World Trade Organization and to engage, um, you know, on a collaborative basis with China over the past uh, two decades, um, maybe you know, I guess at the minimum we can say is not being fully implemented in our dashboard, um, you know, process really and results speaks to how much farther the government has to go. So that's, that's a concern when you ask about what is, what is the government, what's the administration, what is the president, um, you know, focused on and, and what are they not? Um, again, it seems to be about, you know, addressing sort of what's right in front, these kind of immediate risks and, and, and changes that need to, need to, need to be made, um, but not necessarily addressing the longer term. Um, structural reform issues. I'd like you to play devil's advocate for me. So one of the uh, sentences you write in this piece was that we did not expect to hear China's uh, economists argue, as we hear them saying now, that the policy package China intended was never market-oriented in the manner um, the term is used in OECD countries, and that's different and non-convergent, and that different and non-convergent economic models are the new order. So, you know, if you don't actually buy into uh, the liberalizing reform strategy um, that the whole China dashboard is predicated on, you know, what's the argument in terms of disregarding these sorts of uh, these sorts of reforms? Well, I mean, I think there are two. I think the first is that, you know, these these are, you know, these aren't our, these aren't just our or global or Western or IMF or World Bank recommendations, right? These are the set, this is, we're, we're evaluating uh, as, you know, pr- Premier Li Keqiang, we, we quote this in our in our directly in, our, in the text of our dashboard that you know when when the Chinese government um, in 2013 announced this um, substantial agenda of economic reform, which included all these elements, right, labor reform, addressing uh, fiscal reform and the uh, the problems in the fiscal regime, more open capital markets, um, you, you know, a fairer, more competitive environment. Um, you know, all these indicators are policy priorities that the Chinese government has, itself. Um, has has committed to following through with. So I think it's important from a um, y- you know an ob- observer's perspective. Um, and this is something what I was going to say is that Premier Li Keqiang, when these reforms were announced, you know, actually said um, directly that you know the Chinese government invited outside observers to score China on its progress and and to evaluate how China was really doing and and carrying through with these uh, these priorities. So we. You know, take Premier Li at his word that the you know the Chinese um, you know officialdom would like to see a fair assessment, and this is a an honest uh, uh, effort to to try to develop something like that. So that's the first point, and, and the second is that look, this is you know these these 
we fundamentally believe that, um, you know, a, a failure to follow through with many of these uh, needed structural adjustments, particularly in areas like the financial sector, the fiscal regime, um, you, you know, is going to significantly accelerate downside risks to China at the minimum, you know, I think resulting in um, and certainly raising our concern that China could enter a, a period of much slower economic growth. Um, and from a big picture perspective, I think the view is that, you know, the, the longer these kinds of reforms are delayed, uh, the more to which that just erodes future growth potential. So, you know, that's the second, I think, really important point here is that this is very much based on an idea that, um, you know, there is a right set of policy responses um, and we can identify some of those and that Beijing has already done a great job of, of identifying some of those. And so, um, you know, we, we need to understand now if they're really being uh, carried out. But the, the, the fundamental re-questioning of those policy responses that was laid out um, by Premier Lee a few years ago, um, is that a, a, a movement that you think is gaining steam or is this or the, the kind of backsliding on these policies more about the difficulties of implementation? I think that's a, I honestly think that's a little bit of an unknowable question. I think um, we can identify many obstacles to implementation um, in each reform category. But what I would say is that, you know, if you look at environmental policy, for example, which is one of the areas where, uh, you, you know, we give the government good credit for making some, you know, we in some areas we think relatively significant progress and particularly in addressing air pollution in, in major cities. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons that the government faced pushback and entrenched interests and obstacles to reform imp implementation. But nonetheless, it was such a, an important priority that the government has been able to make some significant progress. So I don't think this is just about impediments. Um, I don't think it's just about entrenched, entrenched interests. I think it's about political priorities um, and policymaking capacity. And, um, you know, what what you know, we hope is that the government finds, um, you know, the bandwidth and the space to prioritize some of these other uh, bigger issues um, relatively soon. Great. So, so after that overview, let's let's go down the list and talk about some of these policy um, areas in particular. And let's start with the good. So, you just mentioned the environment. Um, could you walk through some of the um, uh, some of the data inputs you chose for that, and and why you think uh, the, the the air quality and such has really shown a positive trajectory over the past, uh, over the past year. Yeah. So on, on the environmental cluster, um, basically we have, you know, a number of different indicators. The primary one is a gauge of China's air and wa water quality, um, where, you know, on that, we basically look to, um, available public data for the air pollution. We actually look at PM 2.5 data, um, from U S embassies and consulates in Shenyang, Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu, and Guangzhou. Um, we, you know, so basically we pull that data directly from that, that source. Um, we impose some seasonal effects to try to mitigate, uh, you know, basically the seasonality around the winter seasons in particular, um, and come up with a, an aggregate sort of measurement of, you know, how things are changing over time. And that's the area where, again, we do see that there's been some noteworthy improvement. Um, on the water quality index, we actually look directly to data provided by the Ministry of Environmental Protection. Um, and regarding water quality in some of the, you know, China's biggest river basins. Um, and uh, that data is actually published monthly. So on that, on that front, we, we have some, uh, you know, directly provided um, government indicators that, that feed into the, into the analysis. 
So in general, um, for, for the data we're going to end up talking about, uh, you know, people, people have questions about Chinese data. So to what extent do you think, um, you know, these imports are trustworthy? How have you tried to discount the effects of um, state officials trying to um, fund certain numbers? I mean, every week now, it seems we're having a new province revise its, um, its past GDP data. Um, so could you talk about the, um, the you know, weighing data process that you've you've had to go through for this exercise of looking at all these different right, policies. Right. So areas. I think, you know, there are two big picture kind of answers to this. Um, you know, the first is that remember the dashboard is not it's not just reliant on sort of one or two different data streams, right? For each of the for each of the reform clusters that we look at, and there are 10 of those, um, you know, we've developed five to six different primary and supplemental indicators that um, you know, really aggregate in our view, uh, you know, the best available information um, out there on each of those different clusters. Um, and again, you know, imposes some methodology. Each each one is different. Um, you know, it could be a four-quarter moving average to smooth seasonal effects. It could be, you know, estimating certain industrial production or industrial value added data when it's not available because it hasn't been released by the Chinese government, but we have, you know, corollaries in similar economies or in similar sectors in China that we can um, you, you know, make some estimates around. Um, but the big, the big sort of number one overall story is that the, the this is really about um, an aggregation of many, many points of data, not one in particular. Um, and so to the greatest extent possible, you know, what, what we try to do um, and what we have to do um, as analysts is, is, you know, to develop an approach that, you know, takes into account available information from the Chinese government, but also um, supplements that with any other information we can find, um, and uh, you know, in areas where appropriate, discounts um, data that we may feel is um, you know inaccurate um, based based on that. So um, you know, and that's really the second point is that you know, the whole argument of dashboard is that this is you know this is uh, this is about you know doing exactly this uh, look, process of looking at all the available data looking at what we really know about how global markets are changing, about how demand patterns are changing, about how capital um, uh, you know, and financial flows are changing uh, within China and globally, um, and trying to make some assessments about uh, you know, whether reform is being implemented or not. So um, you know, it's, a, it's a very comprehensive effort. And uh, you know, to the greatest extent possible, we took into account in developing the methodology that um, you, you really can't obviously rely on every single piece of official data singularly, um, but collectively, you know, I think the fabric knitted together tells a, um, you know, a very, a very accurate um, tale. Well, I'm glad there's still uh, room for qualitative analysts like yourself, because um, last time I remember, I'm not, I'm not sure you were able to um, do, do seasonal spreading or, or what have you by yourself, but it seems like you've got a great team behind you to help you with the, uh, um, with the numbers. And, and, uh, and, and given, given that China's policy environment today, there's still a lot um, needed on the qualitative side. So, um, turning next to our um, our other positive policy realm, innovation. So the innovative indicator is actually really, I think it's really fascinating because, and like you said, Jordan, this is you know one of the other two areas where we you know give the Chinese government some uh, you know some credit, and and actually the innovative uh, um, indicator is the one where we show the most um, forward progress. And what this indicator really looks like, uh, the the primary um, analysis is based on the contribution of innovative industries to industrial value added in the economy. 
Um, and so we evaluate sort of what role innovative industries are playing in driving economic growth in China um, and how that's changed over time. But then we also compare that to a, a benchmark of 2011 to 2014 OECD averages um, in developed markets like the US, uh, EU, and Japan. And it's really fascinating because what the findings show basically are that you know China's um, uh, innovative industries contribution to industrial value add is as of the third quarter of last year is um, around 32% today. Uh, the U.S. Um, in the OECD average from 2011 to 2014 is 33.6%. So in other words, um, what the finding shows is that China is, we expect, going to catch up to the U.S. contribution of in- innovative industries to the industrial structure um, within the year. Um, so that's actually a big headline finding, and it's driven by two you know, main sources on the China front. The first is that um, obviously with the government's aggressive um, and very robust R&D um, and innovation programs in areas like artificial intelligence and electric vehicles. And, um, you know, I'm sure your listeners are going to be f- familiar with the broad set of, um, y- you know, innovative uh, industries that the Chinese government is promoting right now. Um, but, uh, you know, the so that's having material success in, in driving up the, the share of innovative industries and growth overall in China. And the second reason, which I think is also really interesting and is related to an earlier point that we made, is that supply-side structural reform, which is taking off production over capacities and heavy, uh, you know, inefficient industries, is actually reducing the share of those traditional industries to the industrial structure. So we see both effects playing out in the data. First, that um, you, you know, first that uh, that innovative industries are becoming more important, but also at the same time. Um, that the you know traditional industries are becoming less important, so that's driven this improvement um, in the innovative in the innovative assessment, which uh, you know seems to be a big big success for China. So, so two follow ups to this um, this finding. So, first of all, we out of our out of our seven or eight indices, these two are the only ones that are um, moving in a positive direction. Do you think that's because these are, are relatively low hanging fruit? Um, have these been prioritized more? Sort of what gives? Yeah, well, like I said earlier, and I think, and like you alluded to, Jordan, I mean, I guess we we probably tend to view uh, our starting perspective, uh, you and I, maybe through more of a policy um, and political capacity lens. And, you know, on on that, I, um, you know, I really think these have been the biggest political priorities. Um, I I really do. I think the environment, the environmental crisis in China uh, has been a major point of concern um, uh, you know, obviously for the many, many Chinese citizens who are affected by that on a day-to-day basis, and that has feeded directly into the policymaking process and um, made meant that the government really had no choice but to take this more seriously. And and on the innovation front, I think, um, you know, probably a little bit more towards what you said. Is, is it easier? I mean, I don't think supply-side structural reform was easy. I don't think, you know, forcing mandatory shutdowns and factory clo- closures, which had a, you know, tremendously negative effect on growth and across China's industrial heartland in the, in the Northeast, um, you know, was easy at all. I mean, that came with real, you know, downside political costs, but the innovative piece of it, the R and D funding piece of it, um, you you know, obviously that industrial policy is something that the Chinese government has, um, you know, successfully used to promote growth and um, investment for a long time. So um, again, you know, I think they had, there's a huge priority to, create jobs 
um, and there's a recognition in the in the Chinese government that the you know the future industrial structure is going to have to be much more about high technology and innovative uh, industries. And so, um, you know, that's, that's been the result. Could you talk about some central contradictions in, um, in this reform agenda? So maybe are, are there, are there sorts, are there any sort of reforms that are at cross purposes? So maybe in pushing the innovation agenda, it makes reform on trade and investment harder because we want to keep up barriers so that, um, you know, Tesla can't just take over the the, the Chinese um, electric vehicle market. So we have time for our domestic um, companies to grow. That sort of thing. Are there are there are there lots of crosswinds um, at play on this reform agenda? Yeah, I I think that's a very insightful point, Jordan. And I think um, you know the innovative the piece of it that is about industrial policy and is about you know state led economic and business outcomes is absolutely you know in some inherent sense, um, you know, contradictory to many of the other initiatives on the agenda, right? I mean, financial sector liberalization is about liberalizing capital and reducing the state's, um, you know, outsized role in determining where capital flows um, and, you know, reducing the inefficiencies inherent to the current system, many of which gravitate around, you know, subsidized funding to state-owned companies, which are the biggest holders of outstanding uh, debt in China today and are a major concern for financial systemic risk. So yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a big um, juxtaposition that the government is needing to grapple with. Um, you know, competition too, I think is another piece of this, right? We, our competition indicator, actually, uh, we showed some backsliding in this edition from the last. Uh, we saw that, um, for example, you know, foreign uh, mergers involving foreign companies were significantly more likely, I think four times more likely to come under review from China's uh, anti-monopoly regulators than uh, mergers between domestic firms, which was a big increase from the previous quarter. And, um, you know, things like judicial transparency, intellectual property protection, uh, while an outward focus of policymakers, and, you know, we recognize in the third quarter, there's on the intellectual property front in particular, been a flurry of new activity, the reality is, you know, China still has a very, very long way to go. And Chinese leaders openly recognize that as well. So, um, you know, how do you square, um, you, you know, very robust and assertive state support for innovative industries uh, with, um, you know, having a meaningful set of protections for intellectual property and a competitive environment that allows foreign firms and domestic firms to compete on a, a level playing field? Is that even possible um, in China today? Those are those are big questions. Well, we're looking uh, forward to seeing the, the, the Chinese government struggle with them. Um, so going uh, down to another one of the um, backsliding policy reforms, you, you, you previously mentioned competition, but another one I want to turn to, which there's been some recent news about, is on fiscal policy. So what's been going on there? Yeah, so our fiscal, unfortunately, our, our fiscal indicators are relatively bleak, right? I mean, we basically look at um, on the official, we look at official government local government budgets, and then we look at augmented local government budgets, um, and it, which includes things like infrastructure financing and land transfer fees. And um, we try to come up with a more realistic assessment of what really is the gap between what local governments are asked to spend uh, and the revenue that they bring in um, as a gauge of, you know, where is this whole conversation about uh, China's fiscal uh, assumed to be already assumed to be relatively bleak fiscal picture actually headed. And um, you know, what our indicator shows is that uh, just a massive... Sorry, so 
by bleak fiscal picture, you mean no, no. everyone's in debt. Right. Well, what I mean specifically is that local governments are asked to spend significantly more um, than the revenue that they're bringing in um, through official or semi-official channels. So our assessment shows that you know the gap between um, overall spending and revenue as a ratio is around 144% at the local government level as of the third quarter of last year, which in other words means that local governments are spending about 44% more than the revenue that they bring in. Um, which so how, obviously how does that work? Out. Yeah. Hello. Well, you mean like how do they? Yeah, yeah. So like, how can they spend? How can they spend that money? What's the? Just just lay lay it out for um, ignorant listeners, including myself here. Well, so I mean, basically, the local governments are going into increasing amounts of debt, right, to finance activities. I mean, that's that, that's basically the concern here is that this is a, a accelerating factor for the fiscal indebtedness picture that raises um, a whole broader set of concerns about economic sustainability for China across the board. Um, So, you know, the question really is, and you mentioned, I think, Jordan, um, that uh, there's been some recent interesting policy activity on this front. You know, remember, China's fiscal regime um, is born out of a you know, a process where basically the central government in an effort dating back to the 90s, um, you know, wanted to have a stronger ability to shape fiscal realities at the provincial level. Obviously, China has a long history of, um, you know, very powerful sort of provincial level, um, you know, government structures. And um, the central government felt like they wanted to, you know, be able to control that to a greater degree. And so now local governments are really dependent on what they call transport transfer payments from the central government to make up their um, spending gaps, basically. So they, you know, they spend a certain amount, like, like you mentioned, how do they pay for it? A, a big piece of that is that they're fundamentally reliant on the central government coming in and transferring significant amounts of money um, to the local governments to basically offset um, the funding gaps that they have. And the system is, is not sustainable. It's become increasingly difficult for um, provincial governments to satisfy the obligations that they have on their books. And there's a broad sense that, um, you know, as we, uh, as we, um, as the demographics continue to uh, evolve in a way that is going to require more spending on social welfare and uh, all of its various facets that, uh, you know, these burdens are just going to become unmanageable. Um, so, you know, we think fiscal reform is one of the most fundamental um, and necessary pieces of the overall kind of, you know, reform package or reform agenda that, that we've identified. And again, it's an area where, you know, we just don't see that, uh, we, we don't see that, the, that, that many of the needed changes are, are actually happening. So this last week, there was an announcement that there may be some um, changes to how local governments are able to, um, you know, basically send through costs to the, to the central government for things like social welfare spending. Uh, but, you know, to be determined uh, if this is really going to change the, uh, the outlook here. Let's turn now to uh, some of the the, the international um, economic indicators. So, trade and investment, you um, you say are both are both sort of sitting in neutral right now. I'm curious what impact, if any, um, Trump uh, you know kicking off a uh, a tit for tat tariff war would have not just on those um, two indicators, but whether or not this could spill over into the other policy arenas and, and make more for reform more difficult uh, on, on more domestic-focused uh, reforms. Right, right, right. Well, I, first of all, I hope you're right that the, you know, what we really get from the, uh, from the, the tr- 
Well, we'll see. I mean, we'll, we'll see. It's an, I guess I would say it's an optimistic view to say that all we'll see from the Trump administration is a, a, a tit for tat set of um, policy responses. I think, you know, there's uh, scenarios where we see a much more comprehensive um, and assertive response from the Trump administration. And I actually really think that, you know, right now the sort of observe not just China economic observers, but I think markets generally and companies generally are really um, maybe companies less so, but I think there's a a strong underestimation um, of the willingness of the Trump team to really pursue some very aggressive policies this year. So I think you're right to identify this. I think it's a, you know, it's a major risk and it's going to speak to um, at first at an, at a sort of an existential level, right? I mean, the, this whole idea, we talked earlier about convergence and, um, you know, is there still an argument to be made on the U.S.'s part toward China or with China that, um, you know, a lot of these sort of mar- market-oriented reforms are in its best longer-term interests? And, um, you know, obviously there's a sense that the United States uh, uh, needs to have at least a stable set of relations with China to be able to make that argument. And, you know, I think this we're entering a sort of new world where there's a lot of introspection and dismissiveness in Washington about whether China is ever going to get back on this trajectory. And as a result of that, there's this willingness to pull these levers that haven't been pulled before or haven't been pulled for a very long time. Um, so yes, I, I absolutely think, I, I, I think it's probably less in the immediate sense, um, you know, our balance of payments indicators that speak to the investment flows. Uh, we moved that into neutral sort of territory this year, which was um, this quarter, which was really about, you know, the Chinese government having successfully stabilized capital outflows after a a round of um, you know significant pressure in that area um, previously, um, but you know we we really didn't see any fundamental opening in China's capital markets or financial markets, and um, you know if global environment changes in such a way that precipitates more capital outflows, then and it becomes a bigger problem for China, we may move that back in the other direction next quarter. So I, I don't think we saw too much you know fundamental reform there, and and neither on the trade front. I think that's probably where the the Trump action speaks most directly, right? We look at China's imports of highly protected products and see really no material changes. And um, interestingly, interestingly, though, um, you know, I think Jordan, when you your initial question was sort of, you know, it's assumed I think it's that it's definitely going to get harder, you know, as the Trump administration moves forward with um, a sort of trade action to convince China to, you know, further open up and and um, you know, I would say there's there's an alternative scenario where, you know, and there are some indications of it already. I mentioned earlier that the Chinese government has been talking more about intellectual property protections, which sort of really accelerated on the policy uh, discussion agenda, right as the Trump administration was talking about, um, you know, a 301 case that would involve penalizing Chinese imports over intellectual property theft and forced technology transfers. And so there's some hints there that, you know, the Chinese government may be thinking about ways to, um, you know, try to address some of these concerns rather than just get into a tit for tat conflict. Um, and also on the trade front, you may have seen, but um, last month there was an announcement that, um, you know, a number of um, previously protected uh, consumer goods, were going to see their imports reduced from the uh, tariffs reduced from the China side. And there may be more to come there. So I, I, I'm not really willing to just say this all necessarily going to be um, all conflict and no no potential upside for our indicators. I think that's going to rest on, you know, priorities and decision-making both in China and in DC. You know, it's fascinating to think about the, 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 the impact of Trump on creating a more optimistic uh, Chinese policy um, 
policy scenario, right? You know, we've had we've had Xi go to Davos. Um, we've had another Chinese leader whose name is escaping me over the past few months show up in in Davos and say that we're going to surprise the world um, in in how committed to 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 these economic um, reforms. So you know, maybe maybe there's, maybe there's something to be said going back to the uh, the Chinese word for. A contradiction like Mao Dun, right? Um, where um, it's actually made up of the the two um, uh, words for sword and shield. So maybe it's the sort of thing where America turning from the sword to the shield kind of necessitates or or gives the opportunity for China to to take up that 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 mantle of global um, liberalism, which is a, a, a kind of crazy thing to hear coming out of my mouth. Um, but um, th- there is a, there is a really fascinating tension here, isn't there? Right. Yeah. And it, it, that was Leo he at the uh, at Davos who made this commitment to, you know, further progress on the reform front. And, you know, what I would say about that, though, is I think, um, you know, we're in an environment now where the promises are not enough. Um, and what the global community wants to see, I think what policymakers in Washington want to see and what, you know, invested um, you know, observers uh, like myself and, and our team at, at Rhodium Group who, um, you, you know, have really believed that, you, you know, the sustainability of the economy over the longer term um, requires some of these reform efforts to, to really happen. Um, you know, that's what everyone wants to see. And so it's there, there's maybe some hope. There's definitely hope, um, you know, that the, that the Chinese government is going to get down to the business of following through with some of the stuff that they've said that they want to pursue. Um, but the proof is going to be in the dashboard. The proof is going to be in the indicators, right? This is, again, this is, this is not just about the high level commitments anymore, but it's really about, you know, do we see these things changing? Do we see judicial transparency improving? Do we see the competitive landscape for foreign firms, um, improving? Do we see the financial sector becoming more sustainable, not less? Um, you know, the, these are observable, um, and the dashboard effort is a, is an attempt to, you know, provide that provide that insight to, to policymakers in, in both places. Well, looking forward to having you back uh, every few months and, and, and talking through how this, how this story evolves. Thanks so much, Nick. This was really great. Thank you. I'm happy to. It's excellent. <laughs> Yo, I brought the studio shit. Do that shit to me like this. Listen to me. Listen to me, baby. Yeah, Like 
我在想你，所以你会打扮自己。You can be my Mona Lisa, I can be your Da Vinci。对我来说，年龄还有距离都不成问题。我的心加上你的名，变得更动听。哎，吼，嘿，吼，融化你的冰，穿上脚我热情似火。My way, easy, too far, big is small。照片，谁都听得出来，只是不想坦白，每个人都存在。照片。别说听不明白，看谁说的精彩，我都听得出来。小编，回到了夜，我想看到你，我道个歉，我不想小编，太可怜，请你不要视而不见。小编，回到了夜，如果想来到你道个歉，小编，太可怜，请你不要视而不见。小编，回到了夜，如果想来到你我道个歉，我不想小编。